If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the May 10th, 2021 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. In honor of last week's Cinco de Mayo, tonight we get in the IMRU Gay Back Machine to bring you a trio of Gaytino reports. Tonight, that's Alberto B. Mendoza. Executive Director of the NAHJ, National Association of Hispanic Journalists, and a visit with Mariachi Acorís de Los Angeles, the first LGBTQ mariachi band. But first, let's hang with Oscar Quintero and his drag alter ego, Kay Sedia. <laughs> Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report, voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero, or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my guest, Oscar Quintero, a.k.a. the fabulous Quesadilla, the glittering star of L.A.'s wildly popular Chico's Angels, a Latina drag version of You Know What, 1970s TV show. This Spanglish comedy romp is in its 14th year at the Cavern Club Theater in Silver Lake. But there's much more to Oscar than Quesadilla, although she would strongly disagree. (laughs) Welcome, Oscar. Hi, hi, hi. How Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so excited. I've seen the show a couple of times, and, and I am one of your many fans. Oh, very nice. I, I want to just say, drag can be kind of a loaded word, uh-huh. you know, but you consider yourself not a drag queen or a drag performer or female impersonator, but simply a character actor. An actor, yeah. If somebody calls me a drag queen, I'm not like, uh, I'm not a drag queen, because <laughs> for lack of a better term, that's what I do. I perform in drag. I don't look at it as a bad word, but I think most people, when they think of a drag queen, they think clubs, lip syncing, and I don't do that because I'm not very good at that. So I kind of found another niche for myself within the drag world. It's just a different style. I've auditioned for RuPaul's Drag Race three times, and I haven't gotten on the show. And that wow. one of the things I've always mentioned on my application is like, I don't lip sync because I'm terrible at it. And I wonder if that's part of the reason I haven't gotten on, because the few times that I've done it, I felt more exposed than when I was actually singing. I felt just naked. And I was like, I don't like this. It didn't feel good. I didn't realize that everybody has to lip sync on that show. Well, it's part of the curriculum Uh at the end. Uh If you're one of the final two, you have to lip sync for your life. Well, then you better learn. Right? (laughs) 
Get with it. Get right. with it. Well, I just figured it wasn't for me. Would mm-hmm. it be fair to call Quesadilla your alter ego, which is, you know, a clone, your second self? Are you alike? Are you completely different? Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, you know what? It's funny because I feel like Kay's a version of myself that I wish I had the confidence to be. So yeah, you could say she's my alter ego. She's a version of myself that is fearless in, in some ways. Some would say clueless. <laughs> There's a very fine line because... When I was single, I was a lot braver to go up to people and just flirt. I guess because I knew it was safe. There would be no uh, repercussions. repercussions. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though. I got to say, there was a part of me that was kind of quiet and a bit of a wallflower. But I feel like somehow the years of doing quesadilla, I met in the middle. The way I would describe myself when I was younger, it's like I would apologize before I even walked in the room. You know what I mean? I was just so scared of everyone and people and just... Basic conversation scared me. You come from a family of six, right? I'm the youngest of six. And Hacienda Heights. Yeah. Which I've heard of. Hacienda Heights! <laughs> me and Fergie. <laughs> you learned early that you had to speak up in order to be noticed in that group of six. So how does that jive with what you just well, said? Well, my mother was this loud drunk, for lack of a better term. She was the life of the party. And our world revolved around my mother. My brothers and sisters all tried to find their voice within her world. And... It was alcohol parties every weekend, and it just became louder and louder and violent. So, yeah, in order for me to be, stand out or to even be noticed in that house, I had to get louder. And most of the times I would be performing to Grease soundtrack in the living room for my family and that kind of stuff. Was Quesadilla screaming to come out that early? I guess she was in one way or another. But I remember when I was a kid, I put this belt that my mother had that was all fringe. And I just remember kind of wiggling my hips and love the way it felt. And then I put my mom's heels on and I was just playing in her room. And I was probably like four or five. My father walked in and flipped out. And I think I got the belt that night or something. You know, so then I knew there's something wrong with this. I'm not supposed to do this. And it was very innocent. Like, I didn't think twice of it when I was doing it. And then there was a couple years that I dressed in drag and I kind of realized that was purdy. So that helped. And it just went from there. And I was just like, wow. This is fun. It was a freedom. But, you know, the way I describe my drag is I'm a clown. I'm purely a clown. That's why the makeup is exaggerated. It's over the top. And it's garage clown makeup is what I call it. I love that. Yeah. Quesadilla has spawned quite a cottage industry for Oscar, Mm -hmm. right? I mean, there's other shows, Love Boat Chicas, Chicas in Chains, and a Tupperware fiesta empire, literally. Why don't we talk to Quesadilla about how she made Oscar Quintero a star? You want to call her in? Yeah. Hey, Kay, come here. We're helping. <laughs> hey, Bang. Hey, how are you? Well, how are you? I'm okay just sitting here being sexy, but I can't help it then. It just happens. You either got it or you ain't. Thank you. And you got it. Thank you. Obviously, thank you for noticing. Hard not to. <laughs> but let me ask you a question. I went to your website, which, uh-huh. by the way, looks like a piñata exploded. Thank you. That's in, my life. In a good way. In mm-hmm. a, But I, I, if I may, I want to tell our, our listeners some of the pages that you can click on. Okay. There's... Please, underdressing me with your eyes. Yes. There's Jew Don't Know My Life. Yes. And your videos, your videos, <laughs> America's Next Top Chica Model. Uh-huh. And a YouTube cooking show, or as you call it, YouTube. YouTube. Yes. YouTube. Tell me about, uh, well, tell me whatever you want. How did you and Oscar meet? Well, you know how we met? We, I did a pageant because, you know, I'm a beauty queen. Very beauty. Thank you. And I competed for the Quest for the Crown, which was like a Miss Universe pageant back in 2000 when I was, you know, five years old. Anyway, but it was my first time ever doing a big production like that. It was at the Wiltern Theater in Los Angeles, Celebrity Judges, and 
I was so in awe. First of all, I was just happy that they let me in the building. And the fact that I ended up doing so well, I became the crowd favorite. I was the first runner-up. I should have won, but whatever. Um, you know, they didn't have a donkey on stage. I did. That's all I'm saying. I should have won. And it literally just changed the course of my life that night because I ended up performing a drag strip that following week. I ended up doing a short film. And then before you know it, I had a full-on career. And there's something you don't know about that night. What is it? I was there. You were there? I was there. Wasn't I the favorite? Eh. No, you were. Oh, come on. No, no, listen, listen. (laughs) Jimmy Cuomo, who does the sets for it every year, is is a very good friend. Uh And so I was there, and I thought you were fabulous. And I wanted you to win not only because you were fabulous, Mm -hmm. but because you were Latina. Of course. Like, I want that. And, And yeah, you came awfully close. I, do you birth. know what? But I got. I remember that night feeling like, oh my gosh! I was so convinced I was gonna be in last place, and then when I was the final two, me and his friends, I was like, is this really happening right now? <laughs> it was a very exciting night. But it's funny, full circle. They haven't officially announced it, so I guess this is the official announcement. Patrick Rush, who has hosted the event every year, has decided that last year was his last year. They asked me to take over as host. Can you believe it? Oh my god. A little booty queen from Tijuana is the host of the new that Best in Drake is show. Fantastic. Yes. And we got the scoop right here on you the Gatino Report. Mm-hmm. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gatino Report. And I'm talking to actor Oscar Quintero, aka Quesadilla of Chico's Angels. You have a real rags to riches story because you were born in Tijuana, mm-hmm. as you say, mm-hmm. the youngest of 18 children. 18 and according to Ju, the prettiest. I can't help it. That's what I always tell people. Don't hate me because I'm beautiful. Trust me, after a few minutes, you'll find many other reasons to hate me. <laughs> you won the Miss Tijuana Natural Springs Water Contest. The water that spring right through you. <laughs> but I want to hear about a torrid love affair that you had with a hunky immigration officer. Oh, it was so nice. It was the way I got here the first time. You know, I'm not afraid <laughs> to sleep my way to the middle. I'm not. We slept in the same bed. That's all we did. But it was nice. It was a good time. And it helped me get across the border for the first time. But it also inspired, can I tell you my movie pitch that I want to do? Sure. It's called Tijuana A Gogo. It's about a go-go dancer who falls in love with the immigration officer. They have a love affair, and she keeps trying to cross the border. And one day, he just lets her pass by. And it's all done to, like, 60s music. Almost like Sweet Charity meets Tijuana Hookers. Another scoop for the gay right? report. I, I'm on a roll here. <laughs> Pero you know what, mija? I see Oscar's looking a little miffed over there in the oh, corner. Don't even look at him. No, but that's what? his resting beach face. But you don't want to upset him because he is your ride home. Uh, I guess so. Right? So yes. let, let, let's bring Oscar back. Okay, Dan, thank you so much for having me, Dan. Hey, Oscar, come back. They want to talk to you. I don't know why. Hi. Hi. Wow. <laughs> Schizophrenia right, right here in front of me. a little bit. <laughs> You talked a little bit about your family earlier. First of all, I want to back up on that because you said how, of course, your dad was shocked and smacked you. And that's, yeah. I'm sure, very common because, as you said, yeah. it was totally innocent. You weren't saying, I want to be a girl. Yeah. You weren't saying, I'm gay. You just were plain, you know? And yeah. and uh, that squishes a lot of kids that early who are yeah. doing something innocent that society maybe looks at differently. And you lose time because then you got to rebuild later in life. But you know what? I, I don't hate my father for it because I knew he's a product of his time. Of course. And we were all taught that's wrong. Boys do A, B, and C. Girls do D, C, and F. And we're all conditioned to believe that this is the way we're supposed to be. And my father fell right into that. I think he had a fourth or fifth grade education. He came here on top of a train when he was a kid to work in the field, to send money back to his nine brothers and sisters. So I don't fault him for it. It was was a product of his environment. And the funny thing is my father became my biggest fan when I started doing quesadilla. 
you know, before he passed. And he came to all my shows. He was front and center. And there's a bunch of pictures of us. And, and then I remember one time I brought him up on stage when I was doing the curtain call and audience went just ballistic wow. for him. So he loved it. And I remember coming home to my sisters. I had just done a Tupperware party. I was walking in to her house and my nephew who was like six years old at the time he was just nonchalantly passed by and said hi quesadilla and my dad started busting up it became so normal in our family for me to walk in and drag now it was <laughs> that's beautiful yeah it's beautiful yeah. and you're right you know listen parents do the best they can they goofed mm-hmm. us all up as their parents did yeah. they didn't do it on purpose you do the best you know with the tools you have at that time and there you go you know and I'm a parent now and I'm sure I'm going to screw my kid up in different ways oh I have no doubt <laughs> yes. but let me ask you this one year old baby yeah. are you insane you know, it's funny. I've always wanted a family of my own. And then my husband, when I first brought it up to him, he was like, no, I don't want children. <laughs> Again, we're conditioned to think that's not for us as gay men. But we were able to have a legal wedding and it was a celebration of love. We had 150 guests, including our families. And after about a year of me trying to convince him, he was like, I guess that's the next progression in a relationship is that you create a family. And I'll tell you, it was such a challenging process and the whole year has been challenging, but I would not change a thing. Like sometimes I just look at him or I'm like, I'm in the living room dancing with him when we're watching one of his cartoons or something. And I just start like getting choked up. I'm like, can't believe he's mine. You know, I get to raise this little nugget. And it's, I wish more in the LGBT community could experience this because we're told this isn't for you. You don't get to do this. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Somebody else made those rules and I'm going to break those rules as much as I can because this is such a wonderful experience and it's not for everyone the first probably five of my closest gay friends when I first told them hey we're gonna have a baby they're like and I'm not kidding all five of them like why why would you want to but there are straight couples that don't have kids nobody says you have to have kids gay or straight but I think that reaction was so conditioned to the way we thought about ourselves they're like no that we don't do that what are you doing you're you're going against the grain gay and lesbians don't do that I'm like I've always wanted a family. And sure enough, I still want one more child, even though this was literally the most challenging year for my husband and I, but I still want another child. But it's not easy, especially when you're older and the lack of sleep can uh, really kind of break you at certain points. But Well, I grew up in 1950s East L.A. as yeah. a gay boy. Oh, wow. And you could have said you were land on the moon sooner than have children or yeah. get married. It was not, I don't know, sometimes I think the younger people, young gay boys especially, and gay women think that we were always like, oh, someday I'm going to have a kid. Someday we're going to marry. You couldn't conceive of it. And so I, in particular, find it to hear beautiful stories like that. And by the time that, that it was possible to have children, it was too late for yeah. me. I hear that. But the funny thing is one of the biggest arguments my husband and I had when we were planning this, because, you know, we're of a certain age as well. Oh, you're a baby, well, for I mean, God's I'm in sake. Well, I'm in my mid-40s. My husband's about to turn 50, but uh, was our age. And I kept saying, you know what? Again, this is somebody else's rules of when you are supposed to have children. However, I would say I get why younger people have kids because they can deal with the lack of That's sleep. That's right. That's right. Yeah, but you know what? It's never too late. I know everybody's older. I know it becomes harder. At least foster. All right, I'll get a child. Never mind that I'm 77. (laughs) I'm 77. (laughs) Uh, I should have asked Kay, and I didn't, but but I'll ask you because she might have mentioned it to you. The Tupperware parties sound wild. Oh, my gosh. And it's a big part of your career. It's probably 85% of my income. I fell into it. I went to a Tupperware party that a friend of mine had, and it was Frank, the old folk singer. She calls herself the... All-American Jewish folk singing, surfing, lesbian Tupperware lady. And she looked like a milkman. 
She had a flat top. She would sing these little cute songs with the guitar at the Tupperware party. And I just sat there thinking, I could totally do this as quesadilla. I signed up with no expectations. I literally did it for the hell of it. And then within a couple of years, I started making six figures. Most money I'd ever made in my job. I quit my full-time grocery worker job that I had for 13 years that I hated. And I started doing this full-time. But then it also just led me down other creative avenues. And I cannot imagine going back to like a nine to five again. I've opened Pandora's box. The whole creative aspect of putting a show together, of writing, of creating concepts and ideas, or this person says that. I mean, it fills my heart like nothing else ever has. The whole process does, not just the performing. It's all within the same family. The Tupperware kind of gave me an audience night after night where I started learning how to command a room, how to command a stage, and how to keep an audience engaged. A lot of my jokes would bomb, for me, the bigger joke is recovering from a bomb. That all became schooling for me is audience night after night after night. And very intimate. There'd be like 20, 30 people in the room or, or sometimes there'd be 10 people in the room. And I'm performing a full-on comedy musical show in their living room. I felt naked some days. And then some days I was like, mm, I got this. You know what I mean? It's a show. It's the same as if you're on stage and, and there's a thousand people out there. It's exactly. a show, whether there's three people and I've known shows with three people. <laughs> or, so have we. Yeah. Or, or 1,500, and I've done those too. It's all the same. You do a show. I want to thank you so much, Oscar, for being here. And Kay, I want to thank you too. You got it. And I'll see you both at the Cavern Club. Thank I you, Dan, so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving us this platform too. It's great to have the gay Tinos out, out in the world. Oot and a boot. Oh, yeah. Oot and a boot. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gaytina Report, and I've been talking with actor Oscar Quintero, a.k.a. Quesadilla, of Chico's Angels. Until next time, ten orgullo, be proud. After a long pandemic hibernation, Quesadilla is currently booking in-person and virtual parties. Find more information at kaysedia.com. Stay tuned after this quick break for a Gaytina Report with Alberto B. Mendoza. A snowy day for Langston Hughes, coming up now on The Rainbow Minute. In 2016, the children's picture book The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats marked its 50th anniversary. To celebrate, Viking Press brought out an anniversary edition, complete with eight pages of special bonus material. It was the first picture book to center on a black child. The book reveals the wonderful experiences of a boy named Peter during an urban snowfall. The bonus material reveals that a letter from African-American writer Langston Hughes had made its way to the author one year after the book was first published. Hughes said, The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats is a perfectly charming little book. I wish I had some grandchildren to give it to. Yes, I do. Sincerely yours, Langston Hughes. But Hughes never married nor had children. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Ward Teft. Hello, I'm Patricia Velasquez, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Cinco de Mayo is a holiday that celebrates the Mexican Army's 1862 victory over France at the Battle of Puebla during the Franco-Mexican War. The day, which fell on Wednesday, May 5th this year, 
It's also known as Battle of Puebla Day. While it's a relatively minor holiday in Mexico, in the United States, Cinco de Mayo has evolved into a commemoration of Mexican culture and heritage. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero. Or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. And welcome to my guest, Alberto Mendoza. Mendoza is currently executive director of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists, but he has over 25 years of nonprofit corporate leadership behind him, work that is often blurred with his community activism. Regional VP with Jumpstart, Children First, serving children from low-income communities. President and CEO of the Coalition for Clean Air, honored by U.S. Senator Barbara Boxer with the first-ever U.S. Environmental Leadership Award. And founder of Honor 41, an online nonprofit organization promoting positive Latino, Latina, LGBTQ role models. Bienvenido, Alberto. Gracias. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. And we've been talking about this for a while. So For a long while. I actually want you as my first guest, but you're like always at an airport somewhere. But we'll (laughs) get to why in a minute. We first met when I was honored to be part of your Honor 41 list a few years ago, and we'll get to that online list in a minute, but I was unaware, I'm embarrassed to say, of your impressive background, and all really in service. In addition to those I just mentioned, everything from Girl Scouts USA, Drug Policy Alliance, AIDS Project Los Angeles, where did this life of service come from? It actually really came from my parents. Both of them came from very large families, and with so many kids, I think money was definitely an issue, and so while they definitely helped each other out. They were always giving back to the community. And so I was raised with bringing our clothes and toys to orphanages, doing food drives in our neighborhood. To this day, my dad still goes out to senior homes outside of Tecate towards Mexicali and brings them bread from Tecate. So it's always been about service. Although it was interesting that when I finally said that that's what I'd be doing for my life, they're like, what? No, no, you're supposed to be a doctor, a lawyer or something. We all have to make a living, that's for sure. But to do so and at the same time do important and meaningful work, that's the ultimate and that's what you accomplished. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I I think it's because I love what I do and I'm committed to giving back one way or another. And so I think there's that opportunity to do as much as you can. And I think the rewards will follow. And there's so much to do. That's for sure. There's a lot to do. Let's talk about the D.C.-based National Association of Hispanic Journalists. I know that it's been around a long while, since the early 80s. Yes, it was founded in 1984. And it was a group of journalists who were looking to make sure that there was a better role in advocacy on behalf of Latino journalists and Hispanic journalists throughout the United States. And so the priority is to really focus on diversifying newsrooms and also making sure that the Latino voice in news is well represented. And so they serve as advocates, but also really um, working behind the scenes and in front of the scenes to ensure that diversity is at the forefront and that our communities are definitely represented in the newsrooms. You know, 1984 doesn't sound that long ago to me, but that's a long time ago. Yeah, 30, that was 34 years. Yeah. Are you grooming young journalists? I mean, are there programs to uh, bring a new generation to the media? Yeah, and there are multiple facets to the organization. I think the, the first one is definitely an investment in the next generation of journalists. Right now, actually, we're at a seven-year high of over 2,200 members. Um, at the end of 2011, we had less than 800 members. So to have such a significant jump, I think, is something that is great for the organization. And of those 2,200, almost 600 are students. 
So we always have a very good crop of journalists and that are up and coming and that have an interest in really going into the industry. So we provide mentoring, scholarships, and we provide them the kind of training and development that they need to make sure that they're breaking into the industry in a way that they're going to be successful. We also do work for journalists that are mid-career and also just out of school, making sure that they have access to training, that they know how much technology is really changing the industry and make sure that it's infused into their careers. And now we're looking at making sure that we're doing more so that Latino journalists are being considered for management roles. So we do it at the start, their mid-career and beyond that. And I think one thing that we're now also exploring is how do we help more journalists that are considered freelancers or entrepreneurs? The industry is changing so much, and unfortunately, many long-term journalists have been pushed out because they cost more. And that talent is just disappearing. They can't make a living. And so we want to make sure that we're finding ways to ensure that that work and that experience doesn't go away. And they can still do other jobs and other things that help provide more funding for their lifestyle. But we don't want to lose that talent because they play such an important role in developing the young talent, but also our voice in the community. This is Dan Guerrero with the Gatino Report, and I'm talking to Honor 41 founder Alberto Mendoza. Honor 41. I am such a fan of that. We could Thank talk you. about that forever. But let's start why the annual list is called Honor 41, and then why this self-funded project started in the first place back in 2013, right? Yes. So tell us about the name. Why is it called Honor 41? When I was 14 years old, I was nicknamed 41 by kids that I thought were my friends until my dad heard them calling me 41 at our house. And he calls me into the garage. I remember, ven para acá. ¿Por qué te están diciendo eso? Like, why are they calling you that? They were calling you 41 in Spanish. Yeah, 41. Uh And and we were, by that point, I was raised by the San Diego Tijuana border. So English and Spanish just kind of intermixed. And my dad then proceeds to tell me that calling someone 41 was the equivalent of calling someone a faggot or a maricón. And he asked me, ¿Eres maricón? Right then and there. And I just remember looking up to him and saying, no. I just really wasn't ready. And then he goes outside and kicks everybody out of the house and forbids me from hanging out with them. And like a good kid, I listened to him. And that just made things worse because now they're taunting me and yelling, you know, 41 all the time and harassing me. And the number 41 just became this symbol of such pain and anguish and embarrassment. And I just really wanted to die every time they were yelling that out. So I moved from San Diego to go to college, but the numbers still kept coming at me. And I would just still see it, or the address was, you know, 1041, or the time was 341. It just was like 41 cents and change. And I was like, and it was always like this little dagger. But through the time, through years, it, it just, it was less of a pain. And then I came out, and so I think people just saw that before I knew that myself. Well, I was a few months from turning 41, and I was having dinner with a good friend of mine, Roland Valencia, who is really an icon. In, in pioneer. Our, pioneer in our LGBT community in California, and as a Latino, who's always done so much for our community. And so I'm telling him this story that I'm going to be 41, and I, uh, I'm going to have this number attached with me for a whole year. And he asked me, well, how did those kids know the story of the 41? And I said, what story? And he said... Well, you know, I and, I and he had done a paper on this 30 years, almost to the week, for his um, ethnic studies class, where he found this story that in Mexico City in 1901, there was a group of men that were having a ball, 42 of them, half dressed as men, half dressed as women. Now, I guess the cops had already been kind alerted. of alerted, but they were already know they knew about their activities. But on this particular night, the cops finally came in 
beat him up, and threw them in jail. Of the 42, turns out that one of them was the son-in-law of the then-Mexican president, Porfirio Diaz. So they released him, and the remaining 41 were eventually disappeared for being gay. Either their families had to pay to get them out of town, or if their families did not claim them, or they didn't have the money, they were sent to work camps in the Yucatan. But from then on, using the number 41 was really a form of really putting someone down, a derogatory term that really was kind of hidden within a message. And interestingly enough, I also just found out a couple of years ago that they were housed in La Sección J, J section of the jail. So then the word Joto and Jotas also came from that same time. So I thought, wow, that's kind of isn't that fascinating? Because you, 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 know, you know that words have an origin. But again, that moment, that word, that symbol of oppressing and, and off- being offensive to LGBT people, especially back then, just really was as at its forefront then. So basically what you do is you go with your camera and you go to cities all over the country. And every year you have a Honor 41 list of prominent LGBTQ Latinos from all over the country. Yeah, and, and it's because what came from that story of merging my personal pain and hearing what happened in our community, I wanted to do something to reclaim the number and also acknowledge that there's still kids that are Latino that are still struggling with coming out. And the thing that most of us lacked were role models or positive role models. I mean, we had the extremes of very flamboyant men who almost had to dress as women and then men who were on the down low but were gay. And so I just wanted to do something to be able to increase the opportunity for kids coming up to see that there are so many of us and that we can do different things and your life isn't over. And so, yes, every year we identify 41 Latino LGBTQ role models throughout the country. We go do an interview. I say this is a very distant cousin of the It Gets Better campaign because I felt that campaign was valuable, but it lacked voices of color and it lacked people that could really look like me and tell their stories. And I also thought, you know, it doesn't get better right away. (laughs) So I wanted to hear from people who kind of were on the other side or on their way tell their stories about how it got better, when it was difficult, and how did they survive that? And what you really create is this treasure trove of Latinas and Latinos, whether they're gay or bi or trans, telling their stories. And as you say, you do survive and it does get better. And from so many walks of life. I mean, and you have Puerto Ricanos and Dominicanos and, and Chicanos and all that, that is important. And now you have, what, about 150 of them? 164 so 164. Far. Yes. And people can go online. Yes, honor41.org or on the YouTube channel, Honor41TV, and they can actually see the videos. The interviews really are people's personal story. And I would say that the consistent thread through all of this is that most, if not all of them, have said yes because they identify with the lack of role models that they grew up with. And if they can contribute and share their story and be visible as a role model, they're willing to do it instantly. And that, I think, has been a really great surprise that it never fails. People are like, oh, yes, you know, I want to do that. I think we all feel, uh, those of us who've been gay longer than than (laughs) others, for instance, since time began, you feel a responsibility because we didn't have anybody. When I was growing up, we had Liberace. No one said he was gay. They just said, oh, he's flamboyant, you know. So I think there is that responsibility as a Latino and as an LGBTQ person to reach out to that next generation. The other thing that I never intended but became a a good consequence is that we have 
and we know based on the demographics of who's watching the videos in the comments, is that we're getting the parents of these kids that are watching the stories and are all of a sudden listening and going, oh, almost like this revelation of like, you see so many faces and so many careers and judges and students and doctors and, and like, okay, my kid's going to be okay. And I didn't know. And all right, this is what I need to do. And I'm going to like, they, they usually kind of know their kid is gay and they want to know what the best way to support them. And so we do. We do have families that are watching the videos or parents that are starting to discover that their kid is. We have teachers and preachers. And, and they just, I know, again, because they leave comments and say, thank you for telling the story. Oh, I want to be more supportive of my cousin and so on. So it was a tool about pride for us in our community, but it's also become a tool that helps people because coming out has an impact on everybody around you. And I think that's why it's resonated with folks. This might be a difficult question, but some stories have to stay with you more than others. I mean, everyone has an interesting story for sure, but there's got to be some stories that just that you can't get them out of your head that touched you. And, and you mentioned one to me about that little boy who wanted a doll. Yes. His name is Inoue Vargas, and he's on the 41 list. When he was a little boy, he wanted to play with dolls, and he stole a doll from his neighbor which actually I did the same thing. So all of a sudden there was already a connection point. But when his dad found the doll, not only did he take it away, but he beat him terribly. He was in a very abusive situation, alcoholic parent. His mom left with his sister, and now he's kind of there with his brother and his dad. And it became a difficult experience for him, but his spirit would not be broken. And so his, you know, his dad finally said, well, I'll get you a Superman. So he got a Superman, but then he, he's very creative, turned it into Wonder Woman, <laughs> added hair, painted this, and now he wanted Wonder Woman. And the dad found him and threw it away and beat him. He went out in the field, pulled a stick of wood, and carved a doll out of it, added hair from a corn maze, and he had his doll. Dad found it, beat him up. And he eventually left that environment and came actually to the United States. And he's an amazing artist. He creates sculptures and these beautiful costumes. And the work that he does around fantasy is incredible. And to me, seeing that someone came from such a difficult experience growing up and to really look at the world and still create beauty is really something that is, is quite powerful. And I think a lot of us coming out really dealt with a lot of violence, whether in our homes or being bullied or being harassed. So I'm always really moved by stories of perseverance and people that have endured some difficult times to still look at the beauty of the world. I yeah. want to encourage everyone to please check out Honor 41 because it is inspirational and it's beautiful and it's important. And thank you for that and for all that you do in your career. And thank, thank you. for being here today. Thank you so much for having me. And it's always a pleasure to see you. And you are a role model to me and to many of us. And so we we love seeing what projects you come up with, and we're always here to support you. Thank you. This is Dan Guerrero with a Gatino Report, and I've been talking to Honor 41 founder Alberto Mendoza. And a few gracias. Thank you, Dad, Lalo Guerrero, for our theme music, Los Chucos Suaves. And thank you to my producer, Steve Pride. The Gatino Report is recorded in studio at KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Until next time, ten orgullo. Be proud. We'll be back after this quick break. Poet Langston Hughes, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. 
Langston Hughes was among the first innovators of a new kind of poetry, jazz poetry. Born in Joplin, Mississippi in 1902, Hughes later moved to New York City to attend Columbia and soon became interested in the goings-on in Harlem, specifically the Harlem Renaissance. Rumors of Hughes's sexual orientation began in his early years and persisted throughout his life. He was sometimes seen with another man while attending functions in Harlem. He seemed to know all about the sexual underworld, including his own description of Harlem's drag balls. Often invited to swanky affairs given by Carl Van Vechten, he developed a familiarity with the codes of a then-modern sexual subculture. Hughes, however, preferred to cultivate a sexual ambiguity until his death in 1967. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Dustin Richardson. Hola, soy Patricia Velázquez y estás escuchando IMRU Radio Magazine, Out Front y Out Loud desde 1974. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. You can't call it Cinco de Mayo without a frozen margarita and a mariachi band. But since our producer frowns on my on-air drinking... We'll settle for just the latter. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Gaytino Report. Voices from the Latino LGBTQ community. I'm Dan Guerrero. Or if you can roll your R's, Guerrero. Today, Carlos Samaniego, the leader of the first and only LGBT mariachi on the planet. Well, that we know of. And his star vocalist, Natalia Melendez, who can belt out a ranchera with the best of them. Together, a cosmic friendship between a gay man and a transgender woman set against the macho culture of the mariachi. Ooh, that sounds like a juicy novella. First up, Carlos Amaniego. He grew up in El Sereno with early dreams of being an opera singer. He studied in New York and Italy before slipping into a charro outfit to create and head up the appropriately named Mariachi Arco Iris de Los Angeles, the Rainbow Mariachi of Los Angeles. Hey, Carlos. Thanks Hi. for being here. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good, good, good. Let's cut to the chase. Why an LGBTQ mariachi? Well, I decided to create this group so that people who identify as LGBTQ within the mariachi world have a safe haven to get together rehearse and perform this wonderful music from Mexico. Did you find that as an LGBT person, it was not terribly comfortable to be in the traditional mariachi? I found that very much the case, yes. Throughout my years playing mariachi, and I've been doing mariachi since I was a teenager, I've encountered good and bad experiences. The bad experiences really have caused me to want to create this group. Basically, I had been the victim of bullying and being made fun of and people talking behind my back or straight to my face in regards to the fact that I was an out mariachi or, you know, mariachi isn't even in the equation, just that I was out and working alongside these people. And I decided that I had enough of that. And I thought that other people may be going through the same thing. And I thought, well, we need somewhere to perform and to do this where we're free of all of that kind of negativity. 
actually, you told me that the idea started on a whim while you were at Cal State. Right. So I attended Cal State LA from 1998 until 2002. And around my second year of college, I came out of the closet. I came way out. I flew out and I wanted to join <laughs> any gay organization that I could find. And I joined a men's group in uh, at the Wall of Memorias Project in Highland Park. And I joined the Campus Gay and Lesbian Alliance. And we were planning our Pride events for that year. And at the time, of course, uh, same-sex marriage was not legal. And one of the events for that organization was a mock wedding in protest for same-sex marriages. And so in planning these events, we thought, okay, we do have a budget. Let's bring a mariachi for the wedding. And since Cal State LA is a very Latino campus, we thought, well, yep, that makes sense. And then it dawned on me, wait a minute, wouldn't it be great if I could make it an all-gay mariachi? And everyone just went, can you do that? Is that possible? So I actually had to stop for a moment and think, wait, do I know enough gay people in the mariachi world to get this going? And um, I did. I found people and people helped me find other people and people came in from out of town to do the one gig. And that's when Mariachi Arcoiris de Los Angeles began originally in the year 2000. The Mariachi continued for a while until it dissipated. Maybe about eight or nine months later, I was really young, very inexperienced, didn't know how to really lead a mariachi. And then Mariachi Arcoiris came back into existence in 2014. Is there a difference from the traditional mariachi community today as opposed to 2000? Things have changed somewhat. Or do you find you guys are still separate and in your own little world as a LGBTQ group? Unfortunately, the mariachi world really has not accepted us fully. We really don't get invited into the mariachi conferences or the mariachi festivals. However, on the flip side, we do have our special niche and there are people who hire us because of who we are, what we represent, what we do. And I feel that that's really special because people now hire us where they otherwise would never have considered hiring a mariachi. Lots of pride events, just so many of these events where they would have never considered showcasing a mariachi. Mm -hmm. Why? Mm -hmm. But now that this mariachi exists, there's a reason. Okay, hang out a second because I want to bring on our next guest and then we'll chat together. Natalia Melendez, that's such a pretty name, comes from a family of musicians. So it was no big surprise she was playing the violin by the time she was eight and singing at age 10. And it was always mariachi for her, no opera for her. It was always the mariachi. Actually, for him, because Natalia was born Julio. Hola, Natalia. Hi, Dan. How are you? I'm good. I wish they could see how pretty you are, but it's radio. Ah, well, thank you. <laughs> Your story is so fascinating. Where did it begin? Where did it begin? So, you literally grew up in children's mariachis as a kid. Yeah, I grew up playing violin at the age of eight years old. The first time I seen mariachi, I just gravitated to it. And the violinist that was playing by the name of Laura Sobrino, uh -huh. she was the one that I was mesmerized by. And it was actually at a family party in my home. Uh -huh. And I was just, something clicked within me. And my uncle was in the mariachi, he was a guitarron player. And after that gig, I was literally, you could see a home video of me off to the side with my grandparents and everybody. And yeah. I'm just there for the whole time the group plays. Wow. That was when something triggered in me and I wanted to 
play violin like that lady. One moment can change your whole life, right? That's exactly right. There are actually mariachi conferences all over the Southwest where they train young children. And I love that the tradition continues. They like their Beyonce, they like their Café Tacuba, but they love their mariachi as well. Right. It's so important to keep that tradition going. Yeah, I believe so. When I was young, I started in the Heritage Society, which was with Jose Hernandez. His, yeah. um, Sol de Mexico. With Sol de Mexico, right. And um, Laura was doing the the classes there. And then we had Curita, Iriberto Molina, from Mariachi Vargas, that was the vocal mm-hmm. instructor. And we literally had a schedule when we were young, if we were in Juvenil Sol de Mexico, mm-hmm. we had to do vocal lessons with Curita, and then we would do our music learning with Laura. Oh. And that's what I started when I was young. And it paid off. You're still young, by the way. I think uh, so, too. Thank you. <laughs> no, Carlos mentioned that one of the reasons he formed Arcoiris was to create a safe space for LGBTQ out musicians. But I would suspect that the macho mentality of that world would have been especially difficult for the young Julio. Oh, it was extremely difficult for me. I was actually living in a bubble for so many years, dealing with identity issues, dealing with looking like a young male and not feeling like a male and wanting to be a part of a mariachi world and in a group. And it was very, very difficult. I learned very young at an early age what it was all about to be closeted and not to be accepted as a gay male back then at a very young age. I knew that I couldn't be out. It just wasn't accepted. Well, you were actually double closeted. I was. But you know what? I'm a little rebel. So through time, I kind of didn't care what people were going to say. So then I started tweezing my eyebrows. I was pretty out there. You know, I was like, I got to be me. But being me, I really was not being me because I was being a gay boy, young man. But I'm a transgender female. So, you know, when I was growing up with the girls that I grew up with, like um, Nidia Rojas and and Lucero and and Mm -hmm. a lot of these big people that are amazing musicians now, I wanted to be them. We would be in lessons together and I'm like, why can I look like them? Why can't I sing like them? I want to be a badass musician like them. You know, so it was kind of like, wow, I'm living as Julio, but I'm not happy. I'm not really who I am. But you knew who you were. And I surely just the, did. the world had to be ready for it and you just punched your way through. I sure did. It's very brave. I mean, that's very brave. But there was a lot of repercussions because of it, you know. I'm sure. There was a lot. But look at you now. Look at you now. Yes. Was there a actual moment when you decided to make the full transition or was it just cumulative or was there one day you said, all right, enough already? Yeah, enough was enough. I was in my late 20s and I just had enough. I lived a, uh, because of my, not to veer away from what we were discussing, but I'm a recovering addict. That was due to me being a closeted transgender woman. You know, I was fighting with identity issues. So I clinged on to a drug, but I had enough. I lived a crazy life. I was tired. I didn't want to live another day and walk this earth, not being sober and not living in my true authentic self. I had enough to about 27. And I just got my life, so to speak, excuse my language, by the balls. And I did what I had to do. And I left L.A. I actually put myself in a Christian home for one year away from family, away from friends, no communication with anybody. I said, Lord Jesus, I surrender myself to you, whether I am to be a male and to live with a woman, I'm here. I'm going to do everything that I have to do to do that. I was doing internal cleaning inside Mm -hmm. my soul. And I said, or 
you let me know that the woman that I truly feel I am inside is okay and that I can get over this addiction so that when I do come out to the real world, I can be a productive citizen in life and I could be a happy person internally. And you know, that was the year that changed my life. So I come back home to Los Angeles and I start looking for work besides mariachi and things just started working. I was just going full force. It's like you put a full tank of gas in a car and you go. That's what I did. When I came back to LA, I was loaded and I went. I'm speechless for a minute here. That's a fantastic. You've got to write your book. Come back, Carlos. How are you? I'm good, thanks. <laughs> I know that you also told me that Natalia was hugely helpful to you when you came out. You came out young, but she's the one that dragged you out, kicking and screaming. I tried to kick him out. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yes, I met Natalia when she was still Julio back in 1997, approximately. And we were in this youth group and... I was clearly not out at that time. And Julio, or Jay, what we used to call him, he definitely was. And so I really respected Jay as mm-hmm. a musician mm-hmm. because Natalia is such a, an amazing musician. And I was just getting started. I had up to that point really had only played guitarron and I was switching to violin. So I really looked up to Natalia for that guidance. And I just really admired Jay's playing. And I really remember going over to his house to practice. And he was always very welcoming. And the same person that Natalia is were now. You pretty much, you guys pretty much the same age? We're, yeah. we're the same age. We're okay. only a few months apart. Okay. And so he helped me a great deal to grow as a musician. Mm-hmm. And then as it turns out, also just as a person. Because the more I saw him being himself, so to speak, I thought later to myself, that's okay for me too. It gave you strength. Yeah, and it helped me to find out who I am and that it's okay. And Jay was always very much there for me and just my, you know, my sibling. It's fascinating because in the first incarnation of Arcogiris, you were with Julio. And now in this current version, you're with Natalia. Correct. And how is that different for each of you? She has breasts. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so this is what I love about Natalia. She's the same person that I met when we were teenagers. The fact that she's changed the way she looks, everything else is exactly the same. same. And so thank God for that because she's just such an amazing person and and I'm just so grateful. Oh, I love you, brother. I love you too. (laughs) Doesn't anybody love me? (laughs) We love love you too, Dan. Dan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so your dream is to perform at one of the big mariachi concert events like the one at the Hollywood Bowl and to record your first album, which I know is in the works, and to play in Mexico, right? Yes, absolutely. We need to be displayed, so to speak. Our talents are here And we want to be made known that we exist, not only so that we can perform and show how well we play, but also because we serve, as it turns out, as an example to our community. And I've been told this. People have been messaging me and Natalia saying, hey, I can't believe you exist. I wish something like that existed here where I'm from. Or, you know, some guy in some Pueblo in Mexico has said, because of you, I decided to come out to my family, and I'm a mariachi too, where I play and live. And so all of these things are very powerful. It's amazing to perform for our community, and that's who we're here for. But if we can be seen also on a bigger platform for a bigger, broader audience, then we're serving our community more that way. That's why we want to do that. And performing in Mexico is just 
a dream because this is where the music's from. Mexico is the home of mariachi. And so for us to go and show an LGBTQ mariachi. A U.S. one. Yes. A Chicano one. Exactly. To go and show them that we can perform the music just as well as anyone else can from Mexico. And we're queer. I think that's very powerful, and I think they would appreciate it as well. And Mexico City has a huge gay pride event. I mean, mm-hmm. It's a week long or something. Yeah. Just remember, dreams do come true. You yes. just got to keep dreaming. You're listening to The Gay Tino Report with Dan Guerrero. I'm talking with Carlos Ameniego and Natalia Melendez from the Mariachi Arcoiris de Los Angeles. Thank you, Carlos and Natalia, for being here. Thank you for having us. Hasta pronto. See you all later. Find more information about Mariachi Acoris at www.mariachiarcoiris.com. Okay, that's it for tonight. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer, Steve Pride, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Please follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. And if you are interested in volunteering with IMRU in any capacity, email public at prideonscreen.com. And a reminder, we're a global podcast as well as a show broadcast by KPFK Los Angeles. You can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org. Also catch us at iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. We close with Papuri Lucha Via from Mariachi Acoris de Los Angeles. Adios. Buenas noches. Que me quieres mucho pero estoy seguro de que eso es mentira Una cosa son palabras y otros son los hechos porque el otro día Yo te vi del brazo de otro paseando por todo el paseo de reforma Fue cuando yo me di cuenta que lo que me dice solamente es broma Dices que me quieres mucho pero no te creo y estoy convencido Que todo lo que me digas es pura mentira, nunca me has querido Ay, 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 ay Que todo lo que me digas es pura mentira, nunca me has querido Mira, resulta 
que perdiste todo el tiempo en mí Que ahora te das cuenta que no eres feliz Que no sentiste amor, que irte es lo mejor Entonces para qué tantas mentiras Mira, adelante, puedes irte, tú y tu amante, que sean felices, sé que es joven y muy bonita, sus amores tendrás ahorita, mentirosa. cambiado tanto es muy triste cuando menos lo pensaba y cuando más feliz estaba terminamos y yo y que pienso tanto en ti en todo aquello en tanto amor digo llorando que espero que seas muy feliz sin mí que cuando veas la luna no te haga llorar Y todas las canciones que grabé para ti Poco a poco por la radio escucharás Que me comprendas Lo que ahora voy a decirte Más espero que me entiendas Que no es mi intención herirte Resulta que ya no te quiero No preguntes el motivo Ni yo mismo lo comprendo Pero es verdad lo que te digo ¿Por qué? No sé no sé por qué realmente tú a mí ya no me interesas Tú a mí ya no me interesas Tú a mí ya no me interesas No sé por qué realmente tú a mí ya no, ya no me interesas Tú a mí ya no me interesas Tú a mí ya no me interesas Y ya te pedí perdón Y no me quieres perdonar ¿Qué quieres que yo haga? Que me quede o que me vaya Porque no puedes evitar Que yo lo quiera Es más, lo amo No me preguntes Que cuando comenzó ese amor Porque por Dios Por Dios que no, que no Me acuerdo Tan solo sé que lo encontré 
quedé, me enamoré y lo quiero Es más, lo amo, no discutamos Tienes razón, tuve la culpa, fue mi error Por no decirte francamente que ya no te amo 